In March, the Accreditation Council for Graduate Medical Education released new requirements for resident duty hours that extend the maximum shift length for first-year residents from 16 hours to 24. The new rules were prompted by findings from a randomized trial of surgical trainees that showed that patient outcomes weren't any worse at surgical programs using these flexible duty hour standards. I'm Stephen Morrissey, Managing Editor of the New England Journal of Medicine, and I'm talking with David Ash, John Morgan Professor at the Perlman School of Medicine and the Wharton School at the University of Pennsylvania. Dr. Ash has co-authored a perspective article about using evidence to inform duty hour rules. Dr. Ash, the new requirements that you describe in your article will go into effect this July. How have residents and residency programs responded to them so far? Well, I think the interesting thing is that residency duty hours have been so controversial in the first place, right? So I think that people started making connections between resident duty hours and patient safety back in the 1970s, but it really wasn't until maybe the death of Libby Zion in 1984 that resident duty hours became something people thought ought to be regulated. And since that time, they have remained controversial. I would say largely program directors have been concerned about duty hour regulations that would restrict their ability to structure schedules for residents and also concerned that they might impede education or clinical care in the face of public concern that the lack of restrictions could create patient safety concerns. So although I don't have my finger on the pulse of what all residency program directors are thinking right now, I would think that most of them would be welcoming the flexibility that the new rules provide. How the residents feel is also something that's uncertain, but in general, I think the tone has been that residents have supported more flexibility in duty hour rules, but of course there will be exceptions. These new requirements were released after the publication of the first trial, which examined duty hours for surgical residency programs. You've conducted a study of medical residency programs, the iCompare trial, and your results are still being analyzed. Why do you think the ACGME decided not to wait to release the new rules until your findings were also available? So that's a really interesting question, and I can really only speculate. But the first trial was, as the name would indicate, the first large pragmatic randomized controlled trial of a more flexible system of duty hours in the natural context of residency programs. In that trial, demonstrated that there was no inferiority of more flexible rules in the main outcome of patient safety. Now, having conducted that trial, again, done among residents in general surgery programs, you can imagine that the surgical education community would be eager to have the results of that trial implemented, given that they had put so much effort into doing the trial in the first place. So in the context of a trial recently completed in the general surgery community that demonstrated that there were no increases in any patient safety concerns related to the flexible duty hour rules, it might be natural to conclude that one ought to move forward and implement that, really the strongest level of evidence we've had in the resident duty hours space ever. It is a bit of a challenge to implement those rules when you know that on deck you've got the results of the iCompare study not yet analyzed, but the study completed. I imagine this was a balance between an urgency and a sense of using the evidence we have and a recognition that there will always be more evidence that could come forward. There is no clear stopping line for the collection of evidence, and this was as good a time as any. How much do you think the new rules are going to change standard practice in residency programs? Are there strong motivations to restore longer shifts for first-year residents? So that's such an interesting point. 
you can create rules, and in fact, the ACGME does create duty hour standards. In fact, most of the ACGME rules have nothing to do with duty hours. They have something to do with the welfare of residents or the training of residents, curricular elements, supervision, and the like. People focus on the duty hour standards the most. But in the end, there is a bit of a marketplace as well, right? So that programs, even without duty hour standards, are not going to act the same way that they would in 1984 when Libby Zion died. We know so much more about the impact of sleep and fatigue on residents and on patients. And there is a marketplace in which residents probably are far less tolerant of the long hours that residents used to have in the 1980s. I think that programs that fail to adjust their schedules to accommodate the human needs of residents would very easily find themselves without residents in the next match. So two of the main arguments against shorter resident shifts have been more patient handoffs, which could compromise safety, and that resident education and professionalism might suffer, two things that you've just discussed. Do the new requirements adequately address those concerns? Well, there's almost an inevitable connection between shift length and patient handoffs. If you mandate that shifts are shorter and shorter, then you are effectively increasing the number of handoffs. There really is no mathematical way to have one without the other. And in that sense, by allowing a longer shift length, you can reduce the number of handoffs. I think that's a key advantage that some in the community would see because handoffs have been repeatedly demonstrated to be one of the most dangerous parts of the medical setting. So that, I think, is a good outcome and one that people would welcome. I think the question of medical education is a more challenging one to investigate because, in fact, although it's been theorized that the duty hour rules have a strong and perhaps negative impact on medical education in that they might produce physicians who are either less prepared or less committed to the profession because the duty hour rules have turned them in some sense into clock watchers, that concern, I do not think, has the same data behind it. And so I'm personally looking forward to the results of the iCompare study, which will provide more scientific background about whether duty hour rules have an impact on education. So looking forward to those iCompare results, do you think that they also are going to affect policy? And if they aren't consistent with the first trial results, do you think ACGME is again going to revise these duty hour requirements? Well, the first point in the most general sense is really the most interesting one which is really for the first time, we're seeing large randomized controlled trials being used to inform educational policy. That's actually perhaps the big story here. In the past, we have built a system of medical education based on often well-meaning principles and opinion, little bits of evidence here or there. But what's interesting to me is that despite the enormous impact that our system of medical education has on the care of patients in the future, we really don't subject our processes of education to the same kinds of evidentiary standards that we subject the development and testing of a drug that might be relevant for maybe 10,000 patients. Whereas all of us who need doctors are subjected to the outcomes of medical education. So by that standard, I think this is an enormous step forward. Whether any individual study, like I compare or FIRST, will have a major impact on medical education, I think that remains to be seen. We know that these processes are informed by a whole host of factors, but it's certainly a good thing that science is one of them. So finally, to pursue that, are there other policies in graduate medical education that would benefit from these kinds of rigorous trials? So I think that there are an enormous number of questions in graduate medical education that really deserve some attention. Randomized controlled trials can't be the answer to all of those questions because randomized controlled trials are hard to do, they take a long time, and they're particularly good at answering very narrow questions, but sometimes not the very broad questions. 
But just off the top of my head, I think we could ask questions about exactly what the length of graduate medical education training should be. So should internal medicine remain three years, or perhaps we can shorten it? Perhaps we can shorten undergraduate medical education as well. If we think about the cost of healthcare, part of that cost is the cost of producing the clinicians who will deliver that healthcare, and there may be alternative ways of producing physicians and training them that might be cheaper for us. I think we should explore those and see if there are techniques that we can use that will lower the cost of producing physicians, but not lower the quality of those physicians. We also know that medical information is turning over so much more rapidly than it used to. That is an argument in my mind for shorter training, but perhaps other kinds of ways of coaching or continuing medical education in the long term. So I think the field of medical education really deserves a fresh look at all of its levels. Randomized controlled trials could be part of that, but they don't need to be the only part of that. Thank you, Dr. Ash.